Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this summer edition, we'll feature fire investigation and we'll find out what is transhumanism. But first, here's the news. Scientists have invented a new, new cloak of invisibility. It's still not a cloak, and the items still aren't invisible. This time, the trick is done with mirrors. In the past, physicists have realised that materials with a negative refractive index, which is the index that measures how much light bends through a material when it goes from one medium to another, could be made to bend light waves around an object so that you can't see the object itself. People have been able to make substances with a negative refractive index using metamaterials. Metamaterials are microscopically fine wires and rods that refract light to give the effect of a negative refractive index so that light bends around objects. However, they've only been able to make objects invisible to radar. That is, certain frequencies of radar. So to certain frequencies, and only for radar, very, very small things can be made invisible. They're not really sure how this is going to scale up just yet, because it's very precise work to make the metamaterials, requiring laser precision machining. The new discovery is that calcite crystals and a curved mirror can be used to achieve a similar effect without any negative refractive index. Well, it's not entirely all done with mirrors, it's also done with a prism. You have two prisms of calcite crystal joined together with a little curved mirror at the bottom. Inside the curved mirror is the object you want to hide. You shine light directly onto the calcite prism, the light bends down towards the mirror, bounces off the mirror, and out through the other prism at the other end. To someone on the other side, they won't see a curved mirror at the bottom. Instead, they'll see a flat mirror. The curve completely goes away, and therefore it's as if the object wasn't there. Of course, you still see a flat mirror. And it only works if you put the light directly straight ahead. It's not very angle-friendly. But they did manage to hide a paperclip this way. They have talked about using large calcite crystals to hide cars, but of course, if you were to make someone in a car completely invisible by bending all of the light around them so that none got absorbed and none got reflected, they wouldn't be able to see. You can only see because light hits the retina in your eye. So if you're completely invisible, you'd be completely blind. Let's see what they can do with invisibility next time. I'm speaking with Kate Grimwood, PhD student, 
researching fire investigation at the UTS Faculty of Science. Kate, how did you get into fire investigation? Well, I started off doing my undergraduate at UTS in forensic chemistry and I decided that I had a real affinity for the fire subject and I had a real interest in it. So when I did my honours project, which was also in fire, I continued it on into a research project that spanned for my PhD, essentially. When people investigate fires, what are they expecting to find? Fire investigation, or the primary role of a, of a fire investigator, is that they want cause and origin of the fire. So when they go in there, they look for the, how the fire started, where it originated, what caused it, what the ignition source was, and that's fire investigation specifically. So they might be looking at things like if an ignitable liquid was present or if some other type of accelerant was present and was that the initiator of the fire. My specific project or what I specifically do is a couple of different things. I look at the toxic gases that are emitted during the early stages of a fire or the heating stages of a fire, but I also look at the toxic gases that are emitted post-suppression, so after a fire's been put out. And I also look at how long it takes a fire to reach the phenomenon of flashover, depending on how much polyurethane is in that cell or that structure. So what is flashover? Flashover is a point in the fire where everything in the cell or the structure has reached its auto-ignition temperature without necessarily being impinged by flame. So a flame isn't touching it, essentially. When it gets hot enough, it catches fire? Yeah. Well, essentially, it's from radiant heat. Mm -hmm. So when it all gets that hot, Mm -hmm. does that mean it suddenly gets a lot hotter? Yeah. So what happens is, depending on how big your fuel load might be, you will reach flashover in different times. And there are a whole lot of factors that might influence flashover. So ventilation or fuel load or the shape of the room or where the fuel load is. So then it, it, it will get hotter what happens in the room is that the gas layers or there's a gas layer at the top of the cell of the structure and that will reach a certain temperature. And then the radiant heat coming down from that essentially will cause different items to reach their, their auto-ignition temperature. And so the whole room will be a light, essentially. Right. And it's a phenomena where you can't survive. So if you or I were in this studio right now and it reached flashover, we wouldn't survive. Right. We couldn't survive because it would be so hot. If a firefighter was coming in to try and save us, with all their protective equipment, they wouldn't probably last more than 30 seconds. I don't even know if that's how long they'd last. You can get to flash over at around 600 degrees. And what does it go up to? It's a range. So if you get to 600 degrees, it's it's a term that, and everything has reached auto-ignition, then you you could call it that flashover's been, been achieved. I'm looking, I was looking at temperatures where I was getting it and it, and it was flashovering higher than 600 and we, we had thermocouples in there and it was about 900 degrees. And this happens a lot more quickly than it used to? Yeah, it does. The advent of polymeric materials, so things like polyurethane and a, ho- a whole bunch of other polymers essentially and, and the increase of their use both in how you build a house, how you furnish a house, what you wear and all that kind of stuff because there's a, a higher concentration of those materials in, in your house or in your cellular structure, it adds to the fuel load. So there's more fuel, it can combust or, or it can reach flashover quicker, essentially. 
How do you investigate this? What do you actually do? What do I do? To find these things out. Part of my project is to figure out how long a cell or a structure will take to reach flashover based on how much a polyurethane is in the house, so the cell or the structure. So what I have done previously is a lot of small-scale tests and just recently in February of last year I did a series of large-scale tests. So I had a cell, I had a number of cells, there were four of them and they're all of comparable size, about the size of a small lounge room. I put lounges in there, right? the same lounges bought from the same place that had been aged in the same way and I timed essentially how long it took for those cells or structures to reach flashover. I'd kitted them out with a whole lot of thermocouples so I could tell what temperature was going on both at the floor, the middle and up high and I filmed them and I took photos and I looked at, at the heat coming out of them basically, the energy and I timed how long it took for them to reach flashover. I work with a private fire investigator and I go out and do fires with her so I get the benefit of seeing what happens in the real world and how you can go to a scene which isn't set up, that I don't set up myself, that has parameters that I haven't controlled and I have a look what's going on there and I've done a lot of my own work where I was talking about February last year but I've also gone to the States where I've set up fires there and I've burnt down houses and hotels and that's lots of fun. I have gone to real world fires, yeah, but they haven't thankfully been massive disasters. So you've been to real world fires mm. and you've burned down houses. I have burned down houses. I went to the States. I did that in 2007 or eight, I think, and I met this fantastic fire investigator over there and he does a lot of real life research where what happens in America, and I don't think it's all over America, but... In a lot of states in America, if you want to demolish your house, if you donate it for science purposes, you actually get a tax write-off, which is pretty cool. So a lot of people donate their houses. Well, not a lot. I mean, you know. Some people donate their houses to him and he'll burn them down or or blow them up or whatever and they get a tax write-off. So when I met him, I'd met him the year before and he said, you know, he'd try and help me get some houses So we got one house in this little place called Montrose and basically what we did was it was a... There were four rooms in the house where I cornered off and set them up with the same furniture and had thermocouples in them and and set them on fire and recorded it, photographed it, timed it to see what would happen. They were different sizes. I didn't have as great a control over all the parameters as I did in Australia, so that was a really excellent basis for me to figure out how I was going to do my next set of burns. And then that next week, someone donated a hotel, which was great. You know, one of those ones where you take your car in and it's a single-storey thing? So I think I had eight rooms at my disposal and then we spent a whole weekend doing mine and then a series of other burns as well. What was really great about that is that I had all the same furniture, which is really excellent, and all the rooms were the same size. And so I had much greater control over the parameters. The funny thing about it was that because there was so much work to do, they actually got a working bee, I guess you'd call it, from the local jail. So I had all these inmates coming down to help me, but I wasn't allowed to be left alone with them or give them knives or anything like that. 
So that was a little bit scary, but they were very helpful in the end, which was lovely. And yeah, that helped me set up for my final burns that I did last year, which was excellent. I'm just finishing off some experimental work and I've started to write up a little bit. I'd already started. Unfortunately, I lost a big chunk of it when my computer died and I hadn't backed it up properly. So that's a warning to people. Yeah, I've started to write up and hopefully I'll be handing in at the end of this year. I've had a discussion with my supervisor and uh, it's not due till 2012, but we've decided that I don't want it hanging over my head for another Christmas. So the 23rd of December, handing it in. So that'll be good. Really nice. Because that's only one section. There, are, There's mm-hmm. another section that I'm doing as well, which is, which is toxic gases. Right. And that will mean what I'm looking at is what gases evolve while the foam is heating up. And that's essentially carbon dioxide is considered the, the gaseous killer for asphyxiation. And there's been quite a lot of work done on it, or a lot of work done on it. But I think that some of the work that I'm doing is potentially an indicator that that's not the whole truth. That will change the way that that people self-aggress, how potentially how fires will be fought in the future and potentially how houses are set out, what they're furnished with, what clothing people buy, what it's made of. People will take Huge. more note. Yeah, potentially. Hopefully, hopefully it's, it's big and it will save lives. If it saves one life, then that's really good. I'm happy with that. Kate Grimwood, thank you very much. Ah, my pleasure. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Previously on Diffusion, I've reported on the Singularity Summit Australia that was held in Melbourne in 2010. Singularity is part of the transhumanism movement. What's transhumanism? Well, here's part one of an introduction to transhumanism. Transhumanism is an international movement which regards involuntary aspects of the human condition, such as disability, suffering, disease, ageing, drudge work and involuntary death as unnecessary and undesirable. Transhumanists support the use of science and technology to improve human mental and physical characteristics and capacities. Transhumanists see research into increasing intelligence as causing accelerated technological development. Computer scientist Werner Vinge has suggested that when acceleration gets fast enough, it would form a technological singularity, a point either at which we can do anything we imagine, or a point beyond which present-day humans can't imagine. Today's online world is one that would be difficult to describe to someone from a few hundred years ago. Could they really understand our choices? How attractive and incredible would the life of a 1970s filing clerk be to a peasant from the 15th century? The singularity may make possible technological utopias, or it may unleash destructive forces. Sociologist James Hughes says that the best possible post-human future is achievable only by ensuring that human enablement technologies are safe, making them available to everyone and respecting the right of individuals to have control of their own bodies. Transhumanism respects reason and science and has a commitment to progress. The bioconservatives who oppose transhumanism see altering humanity as a threat 
even if it means a greater working memory or faster muscles or longer, healthier lives. The key accelerationist technologies are nanotechnology, which is machines working at 10 to the minus 9 metres, very small, cognitive enhancement, which is improvements to the way your brain works, brain-computer interfaces, which could be a screen, a keyboard, a mouse at present, or it could be a direct neural interface, directly from your brain to the computer. Machine intelligence. And yes, we are talking about intelligent computers, perhaps self-aware computers. Certainly machines that do a lot of what we do. Cosmic engineering and space migration. Space migration is pretty straightforward. It's the movement of humans into space. In fact, it's the settlement of humans into space and on other planets in our solar system and perhaps further. Cosmic engineering is something on the scale of collecting all of the matter in our solar system that isn't the Earth and creating a sphere, a shell around our sun, all of which would be made into one giant supercomputer. Solar powered, collecting all of the energy from the sun or making a habitable sphere for humans to live on, which would be so big, it wouldn't matter how many children you had, you could not fill it for millions of years. Quantum computers, which are exponentially faster than current computers. So we're talking about computers that are billions of trillions of times faster than current ones, within a very short amount of time. Quantum computers are being worked on all around the world, they can do basic calculations at the moment, but nobody yet has a general purpose quantum computer available. Life extension. Humans today in the Western world with full access to medical technology can live twice as long as humans 100 years ago. Even the people who are against any sort of life extension, who are against altering the human condition with technology, usually, unless they're Amish, they won't have access to antibiotics and other medical technologies that bring your life up to about 80 in the Western world at the moment, 40 years, 100 years ago. And the cornucopia machines, the rise of 3D printers. We now have printers that not only make things in two dimensions, an image of things, but we have printers that can make things in three dimensions. They can make physical solid objects. Now these might be just simple solid objects in plastic, which you can now buy a machine for under $10,000 that can make anything you can design out of plastic, including parts for the machine itself. There are people using 3D printers to make human organs out of basic cell stock. There are people using 3D printers to make food, to make all sorts of things, to make electronics, to make solar cells. There seems to be no limit to what we can do with 3D printers. Ultimately, everything will be made on a desktop manufacturing unit instead of a giant factory. Some people wish to achieve immortality through their works or through their descendants. I wish to achieve immortality by not dying. The wise words of Woody Allen. So there's a history and politics to transhumanism. Transhumanism has pre-enlightenment roots. Since our earliest ancestors sought to transcend the limitations of the human body, to delay death and to achieve wisdom. 
Transhumanism arose when people began to use science and technology to achieve these goals instead of magic and spirituality. Enlightenment philosophers such as Diderot and Condorcet suggested that eventually we could achieve radical longevity, machine intelligence, freedom from drudgery, and the radical evolution of the human form. The Enlightenment narrative of progress, the belief that we can continually improve our condition through rational scientific human agency, also has a political dimension. The Enlightenment argued for democracy and individual rights. The French version of these ideas also pressed for egalitarianism and a strong democratic state, while the English and American versions were less egalitarian and advocated market freedom instead of individual freedom. The tensions between these two versions of Enlightenment thought are a continuing dynamic with the contemporary transhumanist movement. The resistance to Enlightenment ideas that began 300 years ago still shapes the resistance to transhumanist meliorism, improvement of the human condition, today. Religious conservatives reject the humanist claim that progress can be achieved through purely human agency and predict dire consequences for hubris. On the other hand, political authoritarians, especially those growing out of Enlightenment roots, have embraced and advocated for some transhuman projects. One nasty example was the widespread adoption of eugenics by both the left and the right, leading to the systematic, coercive sterilisation of hundreds of thousands of people for alleged genetic faults. Understandably, after World War II, there was a widespread revulsion on the left against bio-utopian ideas. The left was then pushed further towards a romantic technophobia by environmentalism, the anti-corporate and anti-military new left, the spiritual and pastoral counterculture, and intellectual attacks on the Enlightenment from postmodernists. There were still strains of transhumanist meliorism, however, in ideas such as psychedelic liberation, alternative technology, and post-scarcity anarchism. As a consequence of left techno-scepticism, neoliberals and market anarchists were prominent as advocates for techno-utopianism in the 1970s and 1980s, from the corporate futurists to the anarcho-capitalists dreaming of independent states in space and on abandoned oil rigs. As email on the web began to connect technophiles worldwide, the neoliberal Extropy Institute, founded by philosopher Max Moore, emerged in the 1990s as the first organised advocates for transhumanism. Partly in reaction to the free market views of the American-flavoured extropians, European transhumanists organised the broader World Transhumanist Association, WTA, in the late 1990s. The WTA included both social democrats and neoliberals around a liberal democratic definition of transhumanism, codified in the Transhumanist Declaration. The Bush administration, the religious right, and the emergence of this left-right bioconservative axis led many intellectuals to join the growing transhumanist movement and to clearly advocate for the right to human enhancement. Meanwhile, people gathering under the aegis of the World Transhumanist Association which now has more than 5,000 members in more than 100 countries, were rediscovering the egalitarian strain of Enlightenment thought. Polls of transhumanists find that roughly half are on the left, from communists and left anarchists to American liberals, while only a quarter are on the economic right, from anarcho-capitalists to euro-liberals. While almost all transhumanists are in agreement on cultural politics, 
this huge diversity of opinion on economics has led to many skirmishes. In 2009, the group Conservatism Plus organised as a network for transhumanists who support libertarian, conservative, minarchist, republican or otherwise conservative viewpoints. For some in the developing world, transhumanism appears as the Enlightenment on steroids, an ideology that invests national, technological and biomedical progress with revolutionary ambitions. For others, such as many Asians, the Western biopolitical polarisation appears to be irrelevant, as there is little resistance to radical applications of technology and much less enthusiasm for radical Western individualism. Finally, like all movements, there have emerged internal tensions between those who would like to reframe transhumanism to make it less threatening, and those who defend its more radical and futuristic ambitions. In an exercise in rebranding, the World Transhumanist Association has renamed itself Humanity Plus, and is debating demoting transhumanism and the idea of the post-human in favour of longevity and cognitive enhancement. In reaction, more radical transhumanists have gathered on the order of cosmic engineers and issued their own yes to the transhumanist manifesto. I am the very model of a singularitarian. I'm combination transhuman and model less extropian. Aggressively, I'm changing all my body's biochemistry because my body's heritage is altered genetically. Replacing all the cells these bunches here just temporarily. The pattern of my brain and body's weather's continuity. I'll try to improve these patterns with optimal biology. But how will I do that? I need to be smarter. Ah, yes. I'll expand my mental faculties by merging with technology. Expand his mental faculties by merging with technology. Expand his mental faculties by merging with technology. Expand his mental faculties by merging with technology. And with a new technology, renewable clean energy, remove our pathogens and overcome hunger and poverty. In short, I am a transhuman, immortalist, extropian. I am the very model of a singularitarian. In short, he is a transhuman, immortalist, extropian. And that's all for me this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com, that's diffusion at 2SER.com, and tell me your thoughts, feelings, and stories. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. If you'd like to join the Diffusion team and broadcast science on radio, send an email to diffusion at 2SER.com. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join me inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.